Amen. What a great word. Thank you, Ron Perryman, for an incredible testimony. I got a question for you. You love him more today than you did the day he saved you. That's how it works, right? Every day you walk with him, the more you learn to love him. For the past several weeks, we have been in a series, as you've heard, called This Is My Story. And I, as I said when I introduced this story, or this series, is we all have a story. Everybody who walks in here this morning, everybody who's sitting in front of a screen joining us in worship, we all know that everybody has a story. And I'm sure your story, like everybody else's, includes ups and downs. It includes bumps and bruises. It includes triumphs and celebrations. But the story that I'm most interested in is the story of what God has done in your life. So I want you to dwell on that this morning. I want you to think about that, what God has done in your life. And I want you to focus on that and you think, of all the things that God has done for me, how then am I to respond to Him? The premise of our series is this desire to answer the question, what God can do when He gets hold of a life? What can God do? Just how far can he take a person? How much can he dramatically change a life? How can he impact someone's eternity when God gets hold of a life? So today we're going to turn back to the Gospels. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is visiting with some of his closest friends in the town of Bethany. Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, a brother and two sisters, were good friends to Jesus. They had a very real experience with him that dramatically changed their lives. He cared about them in spiritual ways. He cared about them in relational ways. And they all three had personal experiences with the Lord where God got hold of their lives. Of course, Lazarus, we know, is famous. He died. Uh, in the gospel narratives, it says he died. And Jesus shows up a few days after that. And... When God gets hold of Lazarus' life, a dead man walks out of a tomb. Martha, in that same moment, has an experience with Jesus where he's talking to her while Lazarus, her brother, is laying dead in the tomb. And she discovers in that moment that it is Jesus who is the resurrection and the life. This morning, we're going to look specifically at the third of this brother and sister trio. We're going to look at Mary. Now, Luke tells us that earlier in Jesus' ministry, he visits Bethany. He goes to Martha's home. She's there. She's preparing a meal, and she's there cooking in the kitchen. That's where she's focusing her time. But Martha's sister Mary is not in the kitchen, right? They find Mary at the feet of Jesus where she's devouring the meal that the Lord is providing through his, his spoken word, through his teaching, because she recognizes that's much more important than any meal that needs to be prepared. Well, that doesn't sit well with Martha. But Jesus affirms that Mary chose the better part in this situation. And so it's sometime after this encounter from Luke's gospel that Jesus is back in Bethany. He's with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus again. And in today's text, we're going to see that Mary shows extravagant love by pouring out perfume on Jesus, which serves as preparation for his approaching death and burial. And the message for us today, I believe, in this passage of Scripture is that the love of God and love for God is not always a logical thing. It is very often characterized by unreasonable sacrifice and extravagance. Now, all four Gospels contain a story about Jesus being anointed. 
Luke's account of Jesus' body being anointed with perfume is different enough from Matthew, Mark, and John that most scholars believe that he is telling a different story from Jesus' life. But Matthew and Mark's account read just almost very similar, uh, very much alike. Their, their perspective is very much alike. And they say that it's in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper where Jesus goes to dine that Martha is preparing the meal. But we're going to focus on John's perspective this morning. It reads very similar to Mark. It's, it's the same kind of you know, events that happen. But it's in John that we discover it's Mary who's the one who's applying this perfume. And according to John, Jesus has been in the wilderness prior to coming to Bethany. Now you'll remember at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he actually went to the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. Well, this is not that account. This is at the end of his ministry. He actually goes to the wilderness because the chief priests and the Pharisees are out to get him. And so he's kind of escaping from them. And it's there that he goes with his disciples to stay in a town called Ephraim. And from there, uh, that's where he is whenever they start to approach Passover. And from Jesus' childhood at Passover, he would go to Jerusalem. And now it's approaching that time again. And the chief priests and the Pharisees are on high alert. Because they think if Jesus shows his face in Jerusalem, this will be the moment to seize him. So Jesus travels to Bethany. This is a city about, or a town about two miles away from the citadel of Jesus' uh, declared enemies. He knew his end was drawing near. In fact, I imagine that some of his believers, or some of his followers, because of the way that he spoke and the way that he acted, also believed that Jesus' time was drawing near. And I wonder, did Mary suspect it? Mary, who sat at the feet of Jesus, did she suspect that his, her time with him is coming to a close? Because we have this saying or this thought that it, we entertain in our minds that says, while you have opportunity to tell the people that you love, that you love them, you should take advantage of those moments before it's too late, right? We all know that. We all say that. And I wonder, is Mary taking opportunity to let Jesus know in this moment she loves him before it's too late? So John says it's six days before Passover, which most agree was the Saturday before Passover. Jesus goes to Bethany. He's in the home of a man named Simon the leper. And it's in this house that he gathers with some of his closest friends. Now, we don't really know much about Simon the leper. The gospel accounts a lot of times just gives us about this much perspective on the details of what's going on. And we have questions about all this out here. Well, who is he? Where was the house? Who else was there? What were people thinking? But we get about this much perspective. So we don't really even know. Was Simon the leper even there? Well, he, was he still a leper? Was he still a man with leprosy? Or is this someone that Jesus had healed? Maybe this was the one in ten who came back to Jesus that was healed from leprosy to say thank you. We don't know. But he's there at the home of Simon the leper. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning. Because this story has been preached wherever the gospel has been carried for the last 2,000 years. So look with me in John. We're going to be in chapter 12. And I'm going to open by reading to you verses 1 through 2. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there. And Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. 
Now, it's real important for us to recognize that Lazarus is at this table. Lazarus, as we already said, he's the dead man who came out of the tomb. And here he is, and he's eating at the table with Jesus. This whole miraculous moment where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead set off a firestorm. In fact, this was kind of a turning point in Jesus' ministry. If the chief priests and the Pharisees were out to get Jesus, they just cranked it after Lazarus was raised from the dead. Because people started to believe what Jesus was saying based on what he had done in the life of Lazarus. In fact, in verses 9 to 11 that we're not going to get to this morning, it says that people came to see and hear Jesus, but they also wanted to see Lazarus. He was a regular sideshow. You know, dead man, alive again. They wanted to see it. And so they're like, who is this guy? Can we touch him? Is it, you know, is it mirrors? Is it tricks? What is it? Who is this man? Of course, no surprise, we find that Martha is in the kitchen. And she's serving. And I just want to say, for all of you who work in the kitchen, that's a good thing. Christians are to serve. Christians are to be in service. And so Martha is there. But what we see in the lives of these three people, these siblings, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, are some critical activity. Lazarus is sitting there serving as a witness. Now you can scour through the New Testament, and you're not really going to find any words that Lazarus speaks. But man, is his life a witness? Just to see him preaches volumes about what Jesus can do in somebody's life. Martha, of course, is serving. Critical activity for the Christian life. So where is Mary? Mary is caught up in worship. Look with me at verse 3. It says, Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So this is Mary who famously sat at the feet of Jesus when he would come to teach is all of a sudden there once again. But this time she acts in a very unbecoming way. She does something most extravagant. In fact, Mark gives us a little bit different perspective. In Mark 14, verse 3, at the end of it, it says, There came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. So Mary comes to the table prepared. She brings an alabaster jar with her. Now this alabaster jar, you can picture a flask without handles and a very long neck. And it would, inside of it, it would stay sealed to keep the ointment or the perfume preserved. So by breaking the neck of the, of the alabaster jar, or by unsealing it, the perfume could then be poured out. Well, the gospel writers say the jar contains very costly perfume of pure nard. Now, you can either Wikipedia that or World Book that, however you like to look at these things. But nard is something that would come from India. That's how it would get to the Middle East, where Jesus is, in Bethany. Note that Mary's gift is, or her gift is called pure nard, meaning it has no additives. This is the real deal. This is not any kind of substitute. And nard evidently, as perfume, smelled like gladiolus perfume. It had a red tint to it. It could be used for medicinal purposes. It could be used as aromatic wine. It could be used to freshen the breath. Or it could be used as perfume. It's also very costly. It's uh, described here 
that this bottle of pure nard is worth about 300 denarii. That would be a working man's salary for a year. So this is a very expensive bottle of perfume. We don't know exactly why Mary would have it. You know, do you think, what was, were they wealthy? Is that why she had it? Uh, perhaps it was a family heirloom. We all have things like that in our home. Or maybe it could have been uh, a dowry. So that if she, a husband, a man was to take her as his wife, then this could be used to pay the dowry. We don't really know why she had it. We just know that Jewish women in the first century would not necessarily have this on hand to be able to bring to dinner. So she begins, she, she breaks the jar, and she begins to pour the perfume on Jesus. John focuses our attention on Jesus' feet. Mary is pouring it there, which is a very humble act. It's acting like a slave, a servant. Touching someone's feet would be a degrading experience for someone um, in uh, a self-respecting Jew in the first century. But she's beyond self-respect. She's not trying to make herself look good. It's an act of loyal devotion. Mark describes her, he focuses our attention on Jesus' head, where he's pouring it out. In Mark's gospel, we also have Jesus who says, she anointed my body with it. So the imagery is, she's broken this flask, She's pouring it on his feet. She pours it on his head in such abundance. It's running down his beard, all over his body, onto his clothes. It's about a half liter, they would suspect, of perfume that's just being poured all over him. It's soaking his clothes. It starts to fill the room with this sweet-smelling aroma. So now, all of a sudden, her act of extravagance is a blessing to everybody in the room. And then she does this very peculiar thing. She starts to let down her hair. Now that would go against every convention for a Jewish woman in public in the first century. Because only a husband would ever see her hair. But Mary is acting with absolute extravagant abandon. She begins to dry the perfume that's wet his feet with her hair. Can you imagine a more humble act? A more devoted act? But let's be clear here. Her act of devotion to Jesus is justified because no devotion to Jesus can be excessive. Now I'm going to say that again and a little bit louder for those in, in the back. No act of devotion to Jesus can be excessive. You cannot overgive to God. Mary clearly has high regard for Jesus. She's acting undignified in a public setting. She's choosing humiliation rather than self-respect. She wants to do something extravagant for Jesus. She wants everybody there to see that she was willing to make a fool of herself because of her devotion to the Lord. Well, how do you think it went over? Now, I have to imagine that Mary at least kind of ran it over in her mind. I wonder what people will think. But she didn't get frozen there like so many of us do. I'm sure she had to think, well, you know, that might be a little bit embarrassing. Maybe I could wait for a different moment. Except she didn't do that. In fact, maybe she thought, you know, if there's a safe place for me to do this, surely it's here at the dinner with close friends and disciples of Jesus. Except there's a fraud at the table. Judas is the antithesis to Mary. And here he is reclining at the table. Look at verses 4 through 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, 
Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Some people really know how to ruin a moment, don't they? (laughs) And I think Judas had to be an expert in it. He must have sounded so pious, you know, so godly in that moment. As he reacts so harshly to this act of extravagance. To say, you know, seriously? You're going to take something worth that much money and pour it on Jesus' feet? Do you know who he is? He doesn't need that. We could have used that. Imagine all the people around us, the real people with real needs. I mean, if you'd have put that in the treasury, then who knows? All of a sudden, the opportune moment, we could have used that in a dramatic way. It could have made us, you know, a name for our act of service to those people around us. Well, Matthew and Mark point out that Judas is not the only body, person who feels this way. He says there are disciples in the room, and they, it's almost as if they're saying, yeah, I mean, I wasn't going to say it, but, you know, it's true. I can't believe you did that, you know. We could have put that to better use. If we're honest, I'm sure somebody in here is probably thinking the same thing, you know. I think Judas might be right on this one, you know. But you don't want to admit that, you know, because you feel kind of bad for siding with Judas Iscariot. But John makes sure that we get a real clue under, clear understanding of where this thought is coming from. Everybody can sound a little pious sometimes. Everybody can sound a little bit godly. But just beneath the facade, just below the surface, is a motive that is anything but pure. Judas is a thief. He would love to have that money in the treasury so that, you know, he could buy himself the newest iPod or iPhone, whatever it was that was the thing at the moment. Any spiritual motives that Judas had that, he, that you know, motivates his protest quickly evaporates when John pulls back the curtain and we can see who Judas really is. In verse 7, Jesus comes to Mary's defense. He says, therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Judas tells, I mean, Jesus tells Judas and whoever else is opposed to Mary to just pot down. You know, Mary is doing, you know, leave her alone for what she's doing. Now, the language is a little bit complicated. You're thinking, well, what did he mean by that? Did he mean she didn't pour all of it out and she's saving some of it? That's not what he's saying here. In fact, I think the New International Version gives you a better understanding. In verse 7, at the end of it, in the NIV, it says, It was intended that she should save the perfume for the day of my burial. So this act of extravagant devotion that Mary demonstrates serves a greater purpose than even she understood. Jesus is essentially receiving the perfume as anointing for his body prior to being buried. We know that this is occurring on the Saturday night before Passover. So in just five short days, he's going to be arrested. In six days, he'll be crucified and buried and dead. Jesus also responds to Judas and the other disciples here in verse 8. He says, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, don't mistake what Jesus is saying here. A lot of people get confused about this. And they think, you know, that Jesus, I guess they didn't care about the poor. But, of course, the Christian community has always sacrificed for those who have needs. That is, happened then, it's happened throughout history. But Jesus is saying, it's always been the case that the poor have lived among us. But right now, I'm here. I'm here. I'm with you in this very moment. This is a unique time. So the key message this morning is that the love of God 
And love for God is not always logical. It is often characterized as unreasonable sacrifice and extravagance. Last week we read how in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. And so you think, how does the God of all creation respond to man? The God whose robe, the train of it, fills the temple palaces of heaven. How does that kind of God respond to man who's sinful? When Isaiah sees the Lord, he says, woe is me, I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. He recognizes his own sinfulness. So how does holy, holy, holy God react to sinful man? We should respond with judgment, right? But I want you to listen because logic does not always define God's actions towards mankind. Apostle John also wrote three epistles. And in the first one, 1 John, in chapter 3, verse 1, I'm going to read to you from the NIV once again. To hear what John says, that God, how God responds to sinful man. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. See what great love our Father has lavished on us. I love that word lavish. That's why I wanted to read it to you in the NIV. You know what I thought about? Good food. I love when good food is lavished with something. We went to the state fair on Friday, and when you go get those mini donuts or that elephant ear, you do not want a dash of cinnamon sugar on it, do you? You don't want a dash of the powdered sugar. You want them to lavish it on, pile it high. I mean, that's what we're here for, you know? Don't be dignified as you're putting that on there for me. Louise uh, Burkholder recently gave me a big jar of apple butter. It's delicious. And I've decided the worst thing you can do with apple butter is to be dignified when you put it on your biscuit. You're supposed to lavish the biscuit with the apple butter. At least that's the way I like it, which is to say that's the right way to eat it, okay? Now, I recognize everyone does not like their biscuits or their toast or their bread lavished with the jams and jellies. When Rachel and I first got married, I um, was being real kind or real sweet, and she wanted me to make her lunch while she headed out on the road, so I made her a peanut butter and jelly sandwich so that she could take it with her and eat it in the car. Now, peanut butter and jelly, the same thing. If you're going to make it good, do not be dignified. You know, you don't want just a little bit of peanut butter and a little bit of jelly and it tastes like bread. You want to taste the peanut butter. You want to taste. So I loaded it up. I took that grape jam and I put it all over that. I wrapped up, baby, I love you. And she goes out. She didn't make it out of the neighborhood after that grape jam is just rolling down her face onto her place. Now, when she walked into the house, she was not real loving towards me for my act of service. Well, the point I want you to understand is that to be lavished with the Father's great love is not some dignified exchange of love. It's pouring it out. It's covering it up. It's making it run down your chin onto your face and onto your clothes kind of love. How does God to respond with you? How does he respond to you? With affection like you've never experienced before. And it's not because you deserve it. It's not because you've earned it. He calls us children when we're just sinners. So John tells us, for God so loved that he gave. We're sinners who deserve judgment, but God gives. He gives his son Jesus so that we could be forgiven. Why does he do that? He's motivated by love. He loves you so much. 
He gives Jesus to die on the cross to absorb the wrath of the judgment you deserve so that you could be forgiven and received into his kingdom. But we're not just forgiven. Paul tells us that God raised us up with Christ and we are seated with, uh, we are seated with him in the heavenly realms. That is lavish love. It's not logical. It's unreasonable sacrifice and extravagant love. So how do we respond to that kind of over-the-top, running-down-your-face, onto-your-shirt kind of love? Is it with the same unreasonable sacrifice, the same extravagant devotion? Or do we just make sure we respectfully nod to God? We keep regular attendance at church. We dust off our Bibles. We keep good manners. We pray for those people that are sick. We try to give to charitable causes. We stand and sing when we're instructed to. We just keep it all in this nice little box of a dignified relationship with God. We're just too self-absorbed, possibly afraid, or maybe too proud to break the alabaster box before the Lord. John Piper tells a story to illustrate the difference between duty and delight in our relationship to God. He says, imagine bringing your wife Or imagine me bringing my wife home a dozen roses. He says for an anniversary, I'm just going to say just because. And I show up. Rachel meets me at the door. And she says, those are beautiful. Why did you? And I say, it's my duty. How would that go over with you ladies? (laughs) Perhaps a better answer would be, I couldn't help myself. I'm just so in love with you. You make me want to do crazy things. You make me so happy. That I had to bring them to you. Piper says, duty is good, but delight is better. Does your love for God look more like duty or like delight? Mary brought delight to the feet of Jesus. Why? Because when God gets hold of your life, you respond with sacrifice. You offer up extravagant devotion. Way too often we treat our relationship with God only as duty. And it's not that duty is bad. It's just real hard for duty to be the motivation for a loving relationship. Because duty is a job, but delight is a way of living. The other problem is that we can take the Lord for granted. You know what I mean? Things are going so well that we just, you know, we're not really dependent on him. I mean, we honor him with our lives, but he's not front and center in our lives. We take him for granted. In fact, I think that's what Jesus is referring to in verse 8. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. They took for granted that the Lord's in the room. We do the same thing. We act as if we should expect his grace, his presence, his love, his kindness towards us. We think it makes sense to us that the God of the universe would fumble all over himself to look out for your needs, to care for your your prayer requests, to make sure everything turns out well for you. How backwards we have it. Mary is the only one who demonstrated memorable delight in the Lord around the table. When Mary chose to demonstrate her love for Jesus, she gave her very best. The pure nard was her very best. She did not bring a substitute. There were no additives. She didn't just sit there and think, well, I got nothing to offer. What would I give? She didn't play it safe. She didn't allow the thoughts of, you know, what will other people think? Rob her of the blessing of giving to the Lord. She didn't allow those thoughts of, you know, I better be careful here. I better think about everything before I do this. Be reasonable. She gave what was her very best to the Lord. She was misunderstood, and she was criticized for doing it. And you know what? That should be expected. 
when somebody gives their best to the Lord because it doesn't make sense. It's extravagant. It's sacrificial. But remember, no act of devotion to Jesus can be excessive. So let me ask you, where have you been holding back with the Lord? Maybe it's with your time. Do you just allow God to have, you know, this set moment, Lord? You know, I'll give you Sunday mornings. I'll give you just before I eat my food and maybe right before I close my eyes to sleep. So you get that moment. Or are you giving him the very best of your time? Are you ordering your life so that your schedule arranges around your schedule with him? You know, I've got to be in worship. I've got to be at Bible study. So everything else is going to have to take a back seat to that. Do you say, you know what, I'm not going to give God my leftover time in the Word because the best meal of the day is feasting on the Word. So I'm going to give my best moment to that, and that means I'm not going to be able to do this, or I'm going to have to do less of that because I'm giving it to the Lord. Or maybe it's in service. Do you seek to be served? Do you think, you know, somebody else should do that? Or you think, I don't think I have the skill set. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm too big. I'm too small. Whatever it might be. Or are you so devoted to the Lord that you're saying, here am I, send me. Or what about in giving, giving of tithes and offerings? Do you give to the Lord your leftovers? Or does he get a cut off the top? Rachel and I decided at the very outset of our marriage, we wanted to give God the very best. So he gets a cut off the top. Because we did not want to hold so tightly to what he had given to us. We didn't want to be driven by duty, but by delight in giving to the Lord. And then we wanted to keep our hands open so we could look at the needs around us and respond as Jesus would want us to. And we get to see how he cares for our needs because we give to him our best. And we get to see how he blesses what we give to multiply it in, in, in incredible ways. Here's the point. You can't outgive God. Sometimes I want to give him a run for his money. I love him too much to hold on what he's blessed me with. So Mary gave her very best to the Lord. So what's your story? Has God done a miracle in your life? Have you received forgiveness and eternal life? Have you experienced the blessing that comes along with following the Lord and the tender love of the Holy Spirit towards you? Do you know he's, his grace? Has he made a miracle out of a mess in your life? Has he set you free from the burdens of fear or pain or hopelessness or aimless living? We all have a story to tell. For Mary, when God got hold of her life, she responded with extravagant and sacrificial devotion. If God's gotten a hold of your life, I want to invite you to return to the Lord by giving him the very best of your prayers, the very best of your time, the very best of your service, the very best of your praise, praise and worship in extravagant and sacrificial ways. Our Father and God, we do worship you in this moment because you are a great and glorious God who does all things well. And you are mindful of us even in this moment when we are so sinful. And you just pour out on us grace and mercy and love, not because we've earned it or deserved it, but because you're motivated because you love us. So God, even now in this moment, I pray that you would help us to return back to you. Our worship, our devotion our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come to a time of invitation if God's speaking to you. Maybe it is just an act of devotion that you just want to renew with the Lord. Perhaps it's following.
by receiving Jesus for the first time and being set free, letting God get hold of your life. Maybe it's joining the church, following a believer's baptism. Maybe you just need a moment of prayer. Whatever it is, I pray that you won't let this moment pass by. So I'm going to invite you to stand. As you stand, our choir is going to sing. I'll be down front if you need to speak with me. You respond.